Good morning and uh, welcome to everybody this morning. And it may be a surprise for some of you to see me up here this morning, but uh, I have been given the opportunity to teach this week. And so um, I feel honored and it's a privilege for me to be able to come up here and preach and speak from God's Word. So I wanted to start off and I just want to, uh, we're going to be spending the preponderance of our time in Luke chapter 2. So if you wanted to turn your Bibles to Luke 2, that's where we're really going to be camped out this morning. And I just want to start by reading where we left off with our scripture reading this morning. Uh, Mallory read for us Luke chapter 2 verses 1 through 7. And that's the, uh, the account of actually how Joseph and Mary wound up in um, Bethlehem and Jesus actually being born. And as we read at the end there, there was no room for them at the end. And so she gave birth to him in a stable and laid him in a manger. And I'll pick up in Luke chapter 2, verse 8, and we'll be reading through verse 20. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy. That will be for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them, And gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God, for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for an opportunity this morning. God, an opportunity to look in your word. And Father, an opportunity to reflect on one of the greatest events in human history, the birth of your son, Jesus Christ. God, I pray that you would just move through this scripture. God, as your word says, God, it is living and it is breathing and it is active. So, Father, I pray this morning that the words on these pages, God, would be living, breathing, and active in our lives and in our spirits. God, I pray that you would stir within us. Father, I pray that you would open our eyes to things that need to be seen. And, Father, I pray that you would just just reinforce in each of our hearts, God, the truly good news that this story is for all of us. God, I pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, several weeks ago, um, we were in a leadership meeting, and just to bring everybody up to speed, if you're unaware, Seth, myself, and then Dwayne Hill, who uh, is teaching little kids right now, are uh, three of the men, we we make up kind of the leadership of Waypoint at this point, and the three of us are going through this process, um, looking what elder qualifications mean, where we stand in, in terms of Um, our relationship with those qualifications and seeing if we're qualified or not. And really, um, in the last several weeks, we've really come to a place where we've gone through a lot of those qualifications. 
And there's one qualification that, um, that Seth has proved himself qualified in, and that's teaching. But as for Dwayne and myself, for this body here at Waypoint, um, many of you, now little kids, have gotten to hear me and Dwayne teach, and they think we're great. But we wanted to give an opportunity for the rest of the congregation to hear us teach, because it is a very, very important and distinctive quality in an elder, is the ability to teach. And so we want to present ourselves over the next few weeks um, in opportunities of teaching out of God's Word uh, to the rest of the church. And so this is an opportunity for y'all uh, to test and approve whether or not um, we have good, sound, biblical teaching from God's Scripture. And so several weeks ago in our meeting, Seth said, you know, hey, I think we're, we've come to this point and I'd like us to have this opportunity. And he thought, you know, with where we were in Acts and the holidays coming up, he said, you know, I think December may be a good opportunity for us for us to um, open you up to some teaching. So I'm teaching this week and Seth will be preaching next week. Then the week after that will be Dwayne and then Seth again just before Christmas. And so when he said that, I was like, OK, so December and I was kind of worried with where he was going with this. And he said, yeah, I was thinking we could all just do Christmas-based sermons. And on the surface, Christmas-based sermons seem like, yeah, who wouldn't want to preach on Christmas, the birth of our Savior? For me personally, I've always struggled with how do preachers just keep on coming up with Christmas sermons year after year? I mean, it's literally the same story every year. There's no, like, punchline where they're going to be, you know, revolutionize our minds. Like, it's the same story over and over. And even for people, you know, as Christians, if you've grown up in the church, you've heard it a thousand times. If you're a non-Christian and you've never heard anything about, you know, God and the Bible, you have heard about Jesus Christ being born. There are popular movie, children's movies out there about it. Um, Christmas trees, stars, everything, it all points to this holiday that we celebrate as Christians called Christmas. Now, I'm not saying that every sermon or every teaching needs to be new or revolutionary. In fact, it's quite the opposite. Um, and especially for somebody like me, I need to hear things a thousand times before it finally starts to sink in and take root. And I'm sure many of you could feel like you're in the same boat as well. And so I had to take this, this idea of teaching on a, you know, a Christmas-based sermon. And I wasn't thinking, you know, how can I make this new or revolutionary? But, but what would be the best way to cover this? That, that God could speak through his word and just, just reveal something to us. Maybe it's an old truth that we've heard over and over, but I wanted to give God the opportunity to present something to us through his word. So I was reading through the passages about the birth, and I, and I started thinking, I was like, you know, you could go back to the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, we have prophecy after prophecy about a Christ, a Savior, a Son of God who is going to come and save the world. And you could look from all these Old Testament prophecies and what, what rich heritage there is in that for our Christmas story. And I also thought about Abraham and how we could be looking at Abraham because this is really where a lot of it begins. You know, obviously with the creation of man is where it starts, but very quick after God makes this promise to Abraham and how this promise is fulfilled throughout history, throughout the Old Testament, and it culminates with the birth of Jesus Christ and a fulfillment of a promise to Abraham. And then there's also just the historical context of the passage that we're going to be in this morning in Luke 2. What was the world and the culture like at that time when Christ was born? What did it mean for that society and that culture at that moment when Christ was born and, and subsequently lived and died? And there's so many different angles you could take at it. But I thought if you weren't here last year or if you missed some of it, Seth preached, I think it was for four weeks on Christmas last year. 
And he did a lot of what I just walked through is this broad overview. I mean, from Genesis through the birth of what Christmas is, because you you need that broad context at some point to fully understand what God has done through his son, Jesus. And so that's been covered. Honestly, last year, I mean, pull up the podcast and listen to what Seth did last year for four weeks because he lays it out and just you can see this grand design that God had in the birth of Jesus. So for me, this year, I have one week, and that's a lot to cover in one week. So I thought, you know what, let's narrow the focus and let's come from a more ground level, not a broad overview, let's do a ground level kind of singular perspective. And as I read through the narrative, um, I, truly, I was praying through this, I was reading, just open to what God was going to, to reveal. And I, I honestly just wanted to, for, for God to at least show something to me like, hey, this is the direction I want you to head. And as I prayed through it and read through it, there was really one perspective that just kind of came to light for me. And that was the perspective that the shepherds had on the birth narrative. Now, in the birth story, we have a lot of players or characters. We have the wise men who were um, esteemed, you know, highly regarded. Uh, It's all in their name. They're these wise men that, you know, have this status that they have a lot to offer in this birth story. And we can get into the um, nitty-gritty of when exactly they came on the scene, but nonetheless, it's, it's considered a part of the birth narrative. You also have this idea of royalty and kings. We have Caesar Augustus, we have Herod, and just kind of these players that are coming from um, this kind of high and mighty position and the impact they have on the birth narrative. And then you even have the, the mother of Jesus herself, you know, the, the one who gave birth to our Lord and Savior Mary, and her perspective that she has an incredibly unique perspective. But for me, I came to a place where I really identify with the shepherds. And so I really think that God um, brought this to light for me. But I think in some very simple, practical ways, um, I identify with them. I can relate with them. Anybody who knows me, you, you may know that I'm just kind of a simple, uh, common farmer in our area here. I live out of town, out in the country. And I farm, and so I have um, a pretty uh, humble means and humble circumstance that I, that I live in and that I work in. And with the shepherds, they weren't exactly esteemed or highly regarded like some of the other characters. Um, they were pretty common people. They didn't have anything spectacular about them. They were just doing their job working in the fields. And while the shepherds were earning their wages in the field, watching over flocks, and you have to imagine, especially in the dark, really watching the ground to make sure they're not stepping in any manure piles, you know, kind of sidestepping around. Billy, you know what I'm talking about, I know. I can relate with that. Many of us, I think, can relate with where the shepherds come from and who they are. Many of us, we we go to our jobs day after day. Sometimes it can seem menial or mundane even, just going through our job day after day doing a a common practice, something that is very simple. And for me, I I literally can relate with sidestepping manure piles as I walk through the field. And so I feel like I can put myself there in the shepherd's shoes where they were at that time. Beyond just kind of the practical, physical ways in which I think we can relate with them, I see some spiritual and eternal ways that I hope we can relate with them this morning. Because I'd like for us, as we look at the shepherd's perspective, I'd like us to hear the call that the shepherds heard. I'd like for us to see the responsibility that we have that the shepherds saw they had. And I'd also like for us to have the response that the shepherds had over 2,000 years ago. And I'd like for us to see how all those things are not just relevant in a birth narrative that's over 2,000 years old, 
they're relevant for every one of us sitting in here today. Let me give you some context on exactly who these shepherds were as best we know. We have two accounts of a birth narrative in the Bible, and they're in Matthew and they're in Luke. And we're going to spend our time in Luke this morning, because if you're going to look at the shepherd's perspective, that's the only place you'll find it. In Matthew, the shepherds aren't mentioned or talked about. And so Luke gives us the only account of the shepherd's experience. Now, for the shepherds that we're talking about, this is somewhat speculative, but it's widely believed that they were likely temple shepherds where they were watching over flocks that were going to go to the temple to be sacrificed. So in some way, um, they had this, this idea of sacrifice and what a sacrifice meant because they're watching the very animals that are going to be sacrificed. Now, they may have been watching animals that were going to temple sacrifice, but these were lowly and even in the Jewish culture, possibly outcast in society. You have to understand, they were gone for weeks at a time in these fields or in these pastures, living with animals, and so they were unclean, according to Jewish customs and regulations. And they couldn't go to the temple whenever they wanted because they had to stay with the flocks. And so for weeks at a time, they would remain unclean out in the fields with no opportunity to be cleansed, have sacrifices uh, sacrificed for them, or any offerings made on their behalf. They were in the fields with the, with the animals. And so they were also outside of the town of Bethlehem. As we read in the account in Luke, it says they were outside the town of Bethlehem, and we don't know exactly how far, but as we read some context uh, in the passages, we'll see that they were at least some distance where they weren't just right there by town. When they had to go to Bethlehem, they had to travel some distance that it took them some time to get into the town itself. So whether it was, you know, a quarter mile or a couple miles out of town, we don't know, but they did have to travel to some degree to make it into the town of Bethlehem. Now, I don't think that there was any unintended consequence of how the angels went to the shepherds to proclaim this good news. I don't think it was an accident. I think that it was a divine and a direct reflection of what Jesus' life, his birth, and his ministry would look like here on earth. You see, I think going to the shepherds, people who were lowly and outcast, was a reflection of what Jesus' ministry would be here on this earth. In verse 10, I really think that this point is emphasized and brought to light. In verse 10, the angel said, Do not be afraid. I bring to you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. I don't think you could overstate or overemphasize the importance of the last part of that statement, that this good news of great joy would be for all the people. I think there are two ways that we can really see the importance of this message. The first one is an ethnic and religious way that we can see how this message of good news for all people is important. Because at that time, you've got to realize that this whole idea, these prophecies came about in Jewish religion and from the Jewish, Jewish ethnic background. You see, the birth fulfilled these Jewish prophecies in the Old Testament. It fulfilled a promise to Abraham, the father of the Jews and the Israelites. And it was a common belief then that this was only for the Jews and the Israelites. They had no reason to believe that this would be for anybody but themselves, that this promise of a Savior, it was for the Jews and only the Jews. But we see in Acts 10 
Several months ago at this point now, we saw how it was not a message only for the Jews, that Jesus was not a savior only for the Israelites. Jesus was for all people. And in Acts 10, Paul is given a vision and he is told by God to proclaim this word, this good news of Jesus Christ to everybody. It is no longer just for the Jews. Yes, it is first for the Jews, but it is for everybody. It is for Jews and Gentiles or non-Jews alike. There's no distinction made. This is good news for all. And that was a radical shift in the teaching and the interpretation of that day. The other way that I think that this is very important, um, an important statement, is given the socioeconomic um, situation. You see, this wasn't going to be a gospel, according to the angel, that was just for the wealthy, for the highly regarded or esteemed. It wasn't going to be just for royalty. This was a message that was for everybody from all walks of life. You see, in that day, even more so than I think it is today, there were, there were levels in society, especially socioeconomically. We have it today still to some degree, no doubt. But then, I mean, it was everything where you were in society, how much money you had, how much power you had, where you were in societal standing. And you've got to remember, too, that this message of Jesus Christ, the Son coming to be born, there were promises made about this. And the, one of the promises was that this, this Savior would come from the line of David. And, and in Jewish culture, you're thinking of King David, mighty King David. So the Jews were expecting somebody of royalty. And if not, perhaps somebody of royalty, at a minimum, at least somebody that was powerful in, phys in physical stature, powerful and mighty, maybe in a military way, that they were going to, to rule the world. Not a savior that would be born of a virgin in a stall and laid in a feeding trough. You see, this Savior did come from David. If you look at the genealogical account in Matthew, he lays out perfectly where Jesus came from. And he comes from the line of David, but he came from lowly circumstances and humble means. He did come, as the Jews believed, or as many would have believed, he did come to save the wealthy and the elite and the powerful. But as the angel states, he also came to save the lowly, to save the poor, he came to save the rejected from society, those who were forgotten. This was truly good news for all people, no matter your ethnicity, your religious background, or your socioeconomic state. So for those reasons, I don't think it was any accident that the angels came to the shepherds. I think it was absolutely a part of God's grand design and I think it was a perfect foreshadowing of the ministry and the life that Jesus would live in the ministry that he would have because Jesus sought out the poor. He went to the diseased. He went to the outcast and the lowest of society and offered grace to all of them. So in light of who the shepherds were, what this message meant for them, I want us to look at three primary points out of the text. The first one's going to be out of Luke chapter 2, verses 15 and 16. I'll read them again briefly. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem 
and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. You see, upon hearing this good news from the angels, the shepherds didn't debate about this, this message that was brought to them. They didn't just kind of linger around. They didn't kind of brush it off and forget about it and remember, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah remember, we need to go, let's, let's go see about this. No, immediately after this message had come to them, the shepherds went to go see this baby that had been born. And not only did they go immediately, we also see that they hurried to get there. They weren't wasting any time. Now, there's no certainty uh, given on their motives for immediately going and hurrying to see the baby. I think there's two possibilities for why they immediately went to go see this baby. I think the first one is that they were excited and overjoyed and could not wait to embrace the Savior of the world. Who wouldn't be excited to see that and be a part of human history? I think the other reason they may have gone is that maybe they wanted to go and verify and confirm the truth of what had been told them. There were some great claims that were just made by angels. And maybe they wanted to go see, well, did this actually, is it how they said it was? And I would say in my speculation that it was probably a mixture of both. I think they wanted to embrace this Savior, and I think they also wanted to see if it was actually true. And so they hurried off and went. Now, if it was for the reason that they were excited to embrace the Savior then I think this pleases God because they were fervently seeking after their Lord and Savior. They didn't just, just hear it and move on and say, man, that's great news. No, they wanted to seek after, chase after this Savior that had been born and see Him with their own eyes. Now, I don't think it's any secret that through Scripture, God, does, God wants us to desire Him, to pursue Him, to love Him, and to follow after Him. I think all of those are biblical principles that we see through Scripture. I think we see it in the Old Testament throughout Israel's history with God and how God is always trying to draw Israel to come to Him, to seek after Him, to follow in His ways throughout the Old Testament. I think you also see it in Jesus and His life and His teachings, the things that Jesus teaches about how we should follow after God. And I think you see it in the writings of Paul and other New Testament authors as well. And two examples I want to give come out of Matthew chapter 6 and chapter 7. And in Matthew 6, Jesus is, is teaching uh, his followers and the disciples in the Sermon on the Mount. And in this specific context, Jesus is talking about how we are not to worry about what we need. We don't need to worry about clothing or food and how that's not the most important thing in life because God will provide. Rather, in Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, Jesus says, But seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. And similarly, just over in the next chapter, Matthew 7, verses 7 and 8, as Jesus continues to teach, He says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And the one who knocks the door will be opened. See, even Jesus states it very clearly and plainly. And yes, there's some context there, but the point is, is that we need to pursue God. We need to seek Him, seek His kingdom. We need to ask God. We need to um, seek for God. We need to knock on the door. Guys, this, all of this is language and imagery of going after, of pursuing and following God. 
Those are the things that we are to desire and to seek in this life. Now, on the other hand, you know, yes, they may have been excited to embrace their Lord and Savior. On the other hand, I think it could have been that they wanted to verify these claims made by the angels. And with this point, I really relate. You see, by nature, I'm a skeptical guy. Um, for better or worse, I'm skeptical. It doesn't matter. Maybe it's a, it's a seed salesman that's trying to pitch me on a seed I need to plant in my field because it grows and you don't even have to have water to make it grow and you're going to have more abundance of crops than you've ever had. I'm a little skeptical. Maybe it's about a toothpaste that will make your teeth pearly white in just a matter of days. I'm going to do a little research and, and test it. And I did start using that toothpaste last night. We'll see how it goes. Or maybe... I don't know if I'm the only one, but maybe you've received an email from a Nigerian prince that asked you to wire him money in exchange for gold. I haven't gotten the gold yet, but he promises that it's on its way. For better or worse, I am a skeptic. And this is why I love reading this part of the account of the shepherds going to see Jesus. Because I believe part of it is they want to validate these claims made by the angels. Now, the word skeptical and being a skeptic, that's not scriptural or biblical. Um, but there is an aspect of it, of wanting to verify and confirm truth that is very biblical. We studied several weeks ago in Acts 17, specifically in verse 11, about how Paul and Silas went to Berea. And when they arrived at Berea, they started to teach the Bereans all the good news about Jesus and all the teachings of Jesus. But see, the Bereans did not simply take those teachings at face value. Rather, they were regarded, and I quote, for receiving the message with great eagerness, and they examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. It's not a bad thing to question something, to test something, or to see if it's true. In fact, the Bereans regarded, were regarded for that. They weren't going to be fooled by fancy speech or persuasive arguments. They were going to test what they heard against the scriptures that they knew and that they had access to. Now, as a note here, I feel comfortable in speaking on behalf of Waypoint as a church that we do not ask anybody to take anything that is said from this pulpit as truth blindly. We want all of you to test these things that are said against Scripture, against good biblical foundational principles. We don't want anybody who comes in here to think that they have to accept anything that we say as gospel truth without having biblical foundation in it. And I don't think that God asks us to do that, to believe anything just blindly uh, haphazardly and on a whim. That's not where true faith and foundational faith is found. Now, an aspect to this, we cannot know every answer to every question we have this side of heaven. There are things about an infinite God that we cannot know as finite human beings. There, faith absolutely comes into play. In many parts of our, of our beliefs and of our faith, this idea of a faith that we just, we, we cannot know every last answer to every question. We have to have a faith 
in Jesus and who God is. But there's also the other side to it where there are a lot of truths that we proclaim as Christians that are verifiable and that you can study and test against Scripture and even test against historical documentation. And so I believe that Scripture is our guide to a balance between faith and verifiable truths. And I think throughout the whole of Scripture, you see this balance at play. And another way to put it in our specific context with the shepherds, I believe that the shepherds went in faith to see the truth of the angels' claims that they had made. It's both working together. The second point I would like to make is out of verse 17. In verse 17, it says, When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. So after seeking to find this Jesus, and after seeing him, they proceeded to tell everybody what they had heard, what they had experienced, and the claims that had been made to them by the angel. You see, for the shepherds and also, I hope, for us, they couldn't hear and believe this world-changing, this life-changing news. They couldn't just hide it in their hearts and be done with it. No, they needed to then share this news with everyone around them. Immediately after seeing and verifying the truth of the claims that had been made, they shared the gospel message. This isn't something new, um, a new fancy idea um, for the Christian faith. In fact, it's really simple, and it's actually at the core of what a group of people like us are titled as. We are titled as evangelical Christians. And this word evangelical or evangelize means to tell the good news. It's at the core of who we are and who we are labeled as, as evangelical Christians, And in fact, I would say it's at the core of our message this morning. In verse 10, again, the angel said, I bring you good news. Literally, it means I evangelize you. Literally, I evangelize you. I bring you good news. It's at the core of our message here, and it's at the core of who we are as Christians. See, for many evangelizing or sharing the good news or the gospel is something that that many of us have to work up to or build up courage to do. And in this story, we see that it's actually the opposite example we see in the shepherds. It's not something that that they worked up courage to do. It wasn't even something that they planned for. It wasn't something that they went to training to do. It was literally a reaction and a response to seeing their Savior, to the good news. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, we see that some people were gift, are gifted by God to be evangelists. And that's a fact. There are many people who are gifted to share the gospel message. But whether you are gifted or not, it's also a fact that we are all called to share the gospel message. So this is where it gets uncomfortable for me. A few weeks ago, Seth preached on confession, and here at Waypoint, we have always wanted to be very transparent, and especially if I'm going to submit myself before you as an elder candidate, I certainly need to be transparent. I stink at evangelism. I'm terrible at it. Uh, I fear man. I have to work up courage to share if I even do, and it's not natural for me. 
See, this is the least favorite part of my sermon today because it is not natural and it is uncomfortable for me to share the gospel. And for me and for anybody else, that's no excuse. We are still called by Scripture to share the gospel message. And the shepherds give us a fantastic image of what that is. It wasn't some just big event that they really had to to build up for and pray about for weeks on end. It was a response to the gospel to share it. It was coming out. It was oozing out of them. It was coming out of their hearts. They could not help but share the gospel message. They left the flocks. They ran to Bethlehem. They found this Savior, and they could not help but tell because this was good news for all people. Now, you see, if we had a gospel message that was good news for a few people, maybe a certain ethnicity or race or maybe um, a certain socioeconomic group of people, then I would understand why it would be difficult for me to share that good news because oh, I don't want to step on toes. It's not really for this guy over here or this girl over there. But guys, we have a gospel that is for everybody. It is literally good news to anyone. We should not be afraid to share the gospel. We should not be hindered in sharing the gospel. And Jesus gives us a very specific call. In Matthew chapter 28, 19, and 20, we have what, what many of us call the Great Commission from Jesus, where he, asks, he tells us to go into all the world. Uh, he calls us to baptize, to disciple, and to teach people his teachings and his commands. In Mark chapter 16, 15, a very, the same account where Jesus is talking to his disciples after the resurrection in a different way. He says, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. It's pretty simple. But it's not easy for me. There's one quote that really drives this point home for me. And it stopped me in my tracks when I was reading a book. I don't feel like I could be up here preaching a sermon unless I had a quote from an old dead guy for Seth. So I've got a quote from an old dead guy for Seth and the rest of us. Now I was reading a contemporary book, but they quoted Charles Spurgeon. And the quote that Spurgeon had cuts to the core of somebody like me because he says every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. Every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. If you are going to call yourself a Christian, then the parting words that Jesus Christ himself has for us is go into the world and preach my gospel. That's what a missionary is. Whatever your context, wherever you are, that is your mission field. So if you claim to be a Christian, you are either a missionary proclaiming the good news of Christ or you are an imposter. And I many times... An imposter. I don't know if any of you ever think that, well, I could just live my life, you know, to be an example to the world, because that's where I find myself oftentimes. I'll just live in a way that people see the light of Jesus in me, and that should be enough. But God in Christ call us to more, to specifically share the gospel message. Now, an additional thought to this point about evangelism comes out of verse 18. After they had shared the message about Jesus, all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds had said to them. See, if we don't share the gospel, we're depriving people of potentially hearing a truth that could change their life 
We're depriving them of an opportunity of amazement like the hearers in this story had. Yes, God is absolutely sovereign. God will absolutely work despite my fears and trepidations about sharing the gospel. If I miss an opportunity or I forsake an opportunity to share the gospel, God will work despite me. But that is no excuse for not sharing the gospel. Why would Jesus say it over and over if it wasn't important? It is still our responsibility to share the gospel and give people that opportunity for life change. In Romans 10, verse 14, it says it a different way. Paul writing to the Romans, he says, How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? You see, we have kind of these, these religious and theological ideas about evangelism. Paul brings up a very practical point. How are people going to believe in the gospel if nobody tells them about it? It doesn't get much more black and white for somebody like me. I'm a pretty practical person. And that put it, puts it pretty practically. People cannot hear the gospel unless somebody speaks the gospel. The third point I'd like to make comes out of chapter 2, verse 20. The last verse we read. The shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. See, ultimately after hearing the gospel from the angel, after seeing Jesus with their own eyes, the Savior of the world, and after telling others about Jesus in the gospel message, they were brought to a place of glorifying and praising God. Ultimately, this is where the gospel should bring all of us as Christians to a place of glorifying and praising God. Especially when we talk about and when we see the reality of Christ, the Son of God, coming down to save all of humanity. I think the word praising is an easier idea for us to grasp in our culture and also in our English language. We talk about praising even children or other people or even praising our pets for doing the right thing or doing good things. This idea of praise isn't necessarily a foreign idea to us. And in a religious context, we talk about praising God in song. We praise God through prayer. We praise God in our hearts for who He is and what He has done for us. Throughout Scripture, this idea of praising is ever-present. We have an entire book a large book dedicated to praise, simply just praise to God in the book of Psalms. In the last Psalm that we have, Psalm 150, there are three verses in that, verses 1, 2, and 6 that I'd like to read. Praise the Lord, praise God in His sanctuary. Praise Him in His mighty heavens. Praise Him for His acts of power. Praise Him for His surpassing greatness. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. I'll leave it at that. I think the psalmist covers it pretty well. Now this idea of glorifying may not be something that we um, understand as well. I think it's a word that we use in church uh, that maybe we don't all understand the full context of what it means to truly glorify God. It's not a, not a word that's used in our language or in our culture very much. The word glorify literally means to ascribe value or worth to something. It even means to give an opinion of value 
or worth. In my mind and in our culture, I think it's a little easier for me to understand. I think of the word appraisal. You know, if you're having uh, some land appraised or a house appraised or an antique appraised, then you are giving a level of value and worth to something. You are, somebody is giving an opinion of value or worth on something. And in the New Testament, anytime we see this word glorify, it is always in a very positive, high degree that value or worth is being placed on something. So there's a very specific context for this word in the New Testament. But it seems kind of crazy to me that, that we are giving an opinion of value or worth to God, or that we are appraising value or worth in God. But that's absolutely a part of our relationship with God is to put value or worth on Him based on what He has done for us and who He is. God doesn't need our praise. He doesn't need us to glorify Him. He's not going to go into depression because we don't praise Him enough or because we don't give Him a high enough value. It's not our duty to do this. It's not a checklist item on our, our list of how to be a good Christian, you know, check it off the list. What this idea of praising and glorifying God comes down to is it's our response to an understanding of the gospel. Again, it's a response. You see, I think if we truly, if I, I could just be speaking for myself here, if I truly understood that Jesus came that he lived and he died to save mankind, every one of us in this room. And why do we need saving in the first place? Because we are a sinful people. We are depraved people. We are a helpless people. If I truly understand that Jesus came to save me out of my depravity and my sin, I think my only response would be praise and glorification of God. I have a, an example that this was kind of sh- this last week. I think this idea kind of came comes comes home to me in this example because it's hard for me to realize that I'm sinful, depraved, and helpless because I'm standing, I'm walking, I, I have a roof over my head, I, everything seems fine. But this last week, if you've ever wondered what um, farmers do with their spare time, well, we're nerds and we go to farm shows. And this last week, there was a farm show in Amarillo. I, Susan, I know you want to go with me next week. You're like, that sounds so awesome. Let's go. Farm show, they have just all this equipment. They have all kinds of new products out. And so I took my three oldest daughters and myself to the farm show to go see all the fun equipment and just kind of see the new technology in farming. And we went to the Civic Center in Amarillo, and there's a large parking lot, and we park at the far end of a parking lot. And we're making our way across the parking lot to head in to, to go see this farm show. And as we're heading across the parking lot, I, I literally hear like a moaning in the distance. And I look up, and I was truly shocked, startled, and frightened to see that there was an elderly gentleman who was lying face down on the asphalt, halfway underneath a pickup, and he's moaning and crying for help. And as we get closer to help, he is bleeding. He is saying, my back is broken. I can't move. I can't get up. That is an image of somebody who is helpless. He could not do anything on his own. Now to finish that story out, the man was okay. The paramedics came. 
and he was just fine. But man, he was in a helpless state. And for us, we are in a helpless state without Christ. And there is no way that we're getting up off the ground on our own. Praise God that he sent Jesus to save us from our circumstances. You see, I think when we fully understand where we are and where we have come from and what Jesus fully did for us, I think it's then that we are led to a state of praise in a state of glorifying God and ascribing a value to Him that is fitting for God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31, there's a short verse about bringing glory to God. It says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on the context of this this morning, so don't take what I say as gospel truth. Go home and study 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and see if what I'm saying is true. But the point that I get from that passage and from the context around it is that in all of our decisions and all of our actions and in all walks of life, we should bring glory to God whatever it is that we are doing. Because we know where we have come from and what God has done for us. And because of that, in all that we do, we should bring glory to God. And I can just imagine, imagine the shepherds as they met Jesus, the Savior of the world. And they're standing there, they're telling the good news about Jesus. They're saying, man, I can't believe it. Can you believe we're looking at the Son of God and we were looking at a Savior of the entire world And then at some point, they have to start coming off of this high and realizing, well, we got flocks of sheep or goats that we have to go tend to. And this reality kind of, I would imagine, would kind of sober you. You know, you're, you're on this high of just experiencing God, encountering Jesus Christ, Savior of the world, and, well, there's still a job to do. There's still flocks in the field that we need to tend And in the midst of that, coming back to reality, literally walking back to those manure-filled fields to watch sheep or goats or whatever the animals were, they were brought to a place of glorifying and praising God. This idea of glorifying and praising God isn't revolutionary, but I think that the shepherds give us a great snapshot of where the gospel should bring us. That in all we do, whether we're going back to our job, whether we're dealing with our kids again, whether we're, we're going back to the schools to teach, or whether we're going back to shoveling dirt in a field, we should praise God and give glory to Him in all that we do. It should be our response to the gospel. So in conclusion, I think, and I see in Scripture, that the shepherds were called by God to receive Jesus as Savior. They searched for Him, they sought after this Savior, and they verified that it was true, that He was born, He was laying in a manger. And they shared this good news in response. They shared it with everyone around them, and the hearers of that good news were amazed by what they had preached and what they had taught them. And the shepherds went back to the fields to their mundane work, glorifying and praising God. In the same way, just as God called the shepherds that night, God calls all of mankind, everybody in this room, to accept Jesus as your Savior, as Christ, as Lord.
And I think that if we search for the truth about this calling, if we search for the truth about Jesus and we seek after God, that He will be faithful. And I think that when we do that, I think that we should have a response that leads us to share about Jesus everywhere we go. And ultimately, after an encounter with Christ, and after salvation by Jesus Christ, we should be brought to a place of praise and glorification to God. I'll go ahead and invite the worship team up. I hope that in the coming weeks as we continue to discuss this Christmas message, that God would just continue to reveal truths to us about His Son, about the birth of Jesus, and about our response and our responsibility as Christians today. So let's pray. God, I thank you again. God, I thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ. God, while we are still sinners, your Son came to this earth to save us out of our sin. God, out of our lowly and humble circumstances, God, He saved us. God, so that we could stand before You faultless and clean. Father, so that we could spend eternity with You. And Father, so that we would be seen in Your eyes as righteous, not because of anything that we have done, Father, but because of all that You have done in the sacrifice that Jesus made. So Father, we thank You for that. And Father, I pray that in this short moment here, we could just be brought to a place of praise and glory to your name. Through the name of Jesus Christ, we pray this morning. Amen.